Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We're delighted to welcome as our special guest, uh, Eric Edelman, who is rejoining us, uh, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, former ambassador, and many other roles, senior roles in government. Um, so thank you one and all for being here. It is a, um, it's a grim day in American uh, democracy. We had uh, the President of the United States launch an attack on the Capitol, um, and uh, we are in the midst, as we speak, of resignations, of calls for the 25th Amendment to be invoked, um, and, uh, and of course, impeachment. Let's just review, uh, before we, to set the stage, let's just review where we are. Um, and Eric, I want to I start with you because you orchestrated a letter that, uh, an op-ed, rather, that was published by all of the living uh, ex-secretaries of defense, warning um, that the U.S. military can never be used um, for uh, illegal purposes and uh, and get involved in, in anything re- regarding American elections. Um, and um, were there people, this was just a few days ago, did you get any response from people saying, you know, this is this is a little overheated, no need to worry, uh, maybe you're being, maybe you're overreacting? I think Chuck Hagel, you told, you said, uh, had that reaction at first, right? That's true, um, Mona. First, it's great to be back with you and um, uh, the rest of the group here. Um, it does seem, I mean, the letter was published on Monday and it seems like a lifetime ago somehow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the truth is, um, you know, once I circulated the letter, uh, which after, I mean, the precipitating incident was actually the uh, column by David Ignatius in the Washington Post on the 26th of December uh, that um, clearly indicated some disquiet in the senior military about what they might be asked to do by, um, by President Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, I served as a diplomat in Moscow, and I used to read Pravda and Izvestia to try and figure out uh, what is going on and what was going on in the Kremlin at the time. And it's a habit I've never been able to break. So I read the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal every day, uh, similarly trying to decode what is going on. <sighs> and um, the you know Ignatius column was pretty clear to me was coming either directly from General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or from people uh, around him. Um, and I found that very troubling. And so I, I had been talking with my colleague at Johns Hopkins, Sice, Elliot Cohen, who's one of the ranking academic experts on civil military relations. And uh, we talked, we kind of had the idea of maybe a, a, an op-ed, something along the lines, frankly, of an op-ed I don't agree with, which is the so-called Four Horsemen op-ed that George Schultz and Henry Kissinger, Bill Perry, and um, Sam Nunn signed uh, you know, more than 10 years ago about nuclear weapons. But I thought if we could get three, four, or five secretaries of defense to weigh in on this subject, it might have a, you know, a, a useful chastening effect on anybody thinking about this. Um, I spoke with 
uh, Vice, Vice President Cheney about it. He he agreed that that might be the case and asked us to draft something up and gave us some helpful suggestions on language. When I finally started circulating it, which was not until uh, New Year's Eve day, uh, I started getting back very quick uh, acceptances by secretaries. And by kind of late afternoon uh, of that day, we had seven. Uh, it is true that Secretary Hagel was the last to come on board, uh, not until the next morning, really, New Year's Day. Some of that was technical difficulties of getting a hold of him. But um, but he did seem to have some reluctance that maybe this was an overreaction. You know, in the end of the day, I think given um, what happened when the letter actually broke on Sunday, when it was posted to the Washington Post website, hot on the heels of the Georgia phone call between President Trump and uh, the revelation of that phone call and, and Secretary of State uh, Brad Raffensberger, I think everybody by that point realized that this was, you know, a well-needed uh, cautionary. Can I ask you, based on your experience and your tea leaf reading, I mean, there has been talk in the last 24, 36 hours of a so-called soft 25th Amendment. That is, that even if the 25th Amendment isn't technically being invoked, um, that the Pentagon would not take direct orders from the president of the United States right now, but would look to um, Pence and or others. What do you make of that? Well, I think it has a little bit of surface plausibility in the sense that uh, if you look at the statement Acting Secretary Miller made last night about the uh, uh, Pentagon providing the um, D.C. National Guard to the um, uh, to Mayor Bowser and to the Metropolitan Police to help uh, restore order on the Capitol and clear the uh, Capitol complex. He made reference to conversations with uh, Vice President Pence on the scene with Speaker Pelosi, with Minority Leader McCarthy, and with the Senate uh, Majority and Minority Leaders uh, McConnell and Schumer. There's no mention at all of any conversation with the um, commander in chief. Um, and so I think one can read that as uh, people at least at a minimum trying to work around the president, um, you know, if, if not actually invoking the, uh, the 25th amendment. Linda, what do you, um, what do you make of a, a situation in which we are in terror um, over the next 13 days that, a guy who is being, has been locked out of Twitter and Facebook still has access to the nuclear codes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one of the things I wondered uh, in that uh, letter that was released, a lot of people have uh, noted that there was far more of a presence, a National Guard presence and other uh, federal force presence uh, in June, back during the Black Lives Matter protests uh, in Washington, D.C. And those, of course, were ordered uh, by the president. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I first heard that, I thought, well, maybe they did ask him uh, for the National Guard to, uh, to be sent to guard Capitol Hill. And he said no. Um, I, I don't know if it's possible, uh, if, if that's what happened, or if, as Eric and others have suggested, that perhaps it is just a, a soft uh, 25th Amendment. But there is something really 
frightening about the possibility that we have a man, and not the possibility, the, the, the fact that we have a man sitting in the Oval Office, the commander-in-chief, who is out of his mind. He is absolutely unhinged. He has fomented what is uh, essentially a seditious mob to go up to the uh, Capitol and to break into the Capitol. And anybody who suggests that he's just thinking that they ought to go up there and, you know, exercise their First Amendment rights, that's ridiculous. What he said is that we have to take back our country. Yep. And taking back our country is clearly a message that we need a revolution and a revolution requires force. And uh, he has fomented um, a, a seditious attempt to interfere with the Congress of the United States. Oh, he said there were, you know, there were weak Republicans and that right. uh, we needed to show strength. And he said, I'm going to walk up there with you, he said to the mob. Mm -hmm. um, Eric, you wanted to make another point about this? Uh, just to, you know, to Linda's point, uh, Mona, um, there have been reports that during the course of the day, the president resisted uh, efforts by the Pentagon to send the guard, uh, you know, into the city uh, at that point. So I think there's probably a lot we're going to learn um, in the next few days and, uh, and probably uh, a lot more we're going to learn after the 20th of January about how a lot of this uh, played out. Uh, but it is striking that there just was no mention of the, you know, essentially the National Command Authority uh, when this step was taken last night. Um, Damon, uh, it, I don't know about you. I mean, uh, he, here in, in the Washington, D.C. area, we got, you know, alerts on our phones, you know, that loud buzzing that you get when there's a big storm coming or something, you know, alerting us to the fact that we were all under curfew as of 6 p.m. Um, there is a palpable sense of fear uh, around here about what could happen. And there are still these huge mobs of obviously deranged and violent people who are being egged on uh, by the president of the United States. And yet we hear that the Congress, which has the power to re remove him, they could meet, they could impeach and remove him quickly. Um, and, uh, but they're, they're adjourning. Uh, well, it's not exactly clear what is happening with that because, you know, Chuck Schumer issued a statement a couple of hours ago calling on uh, Vice President Pence to kind of lead the cabinet in a 25th Amendment move to remove Trump from office. And uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi has actually uh, had a press conference as of around two o'clock today in which she also says, quote, I joined the Senate Democratic leader in calling on the vice president to remove this president by immediately invoking the 25th Amendment. If the vice president and cabinet do not act, the Congress may be prepared to move forward with impeachment. So clearly they're keeping 
people around in case this has to happen. It, it is a little distressing that it's put in terms of May. I mean, we're, we're caught in, in a bind here, and it's the same bind in a way that we were in almost a year ago when Trump was impeached, that impeachment is really hard, and especially mm. with the incredible deadline that we're up to, we have 13 days to go. You don't want to initiate uh, impeachment proceedings unless it can be assured to happen very quickly and to be successful. Because the idea of like spending the next six days or eight days going through this kind of theatrics that then ends in him being acquitted yet again would be disastrous. So that so that would be bad, but it's also very difficult politically to thread that needle. As we saw, sixty-five percent of the Republicans in the House were willing to overturn the results of the election just yep. yesterday they after voted- the events. They voted for the coup after the attack on the Capitol. Right. After. So so if yeah. that's a gauge of Republican sentiment, then, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that there would be enough Republicans to go along with removal. Um, you know, and the fact that Elaine Chao, uh, the transportation secretary, resigned today as well, one pr- would presume, uh, you know, that was done in consultation with her husband, the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, perhaps on the thought of you don't want to be caught having to make a decision about whether you're going to move against the sitting president for the first time in American history, removing him with the 25th Amendment. So we have this typical thing that we've seen for the entirety of the Trump administration, where you have different groups of elites knowing what they really should do, but yet trying to toss the football back and forth to get the other one to do it so they don't have to take responsibility. And and it's it's a real issue. I think it would be much better for the country if this is going to happen for it to be impeachment and removal, because then there is political accountability. I know that- Furthermore, he can no longer hold a position of trust in the United States of America. Yes, that would be, that would be an excellent extra, very important added bonus, because that would then remove him from uh, the direct political calculus of him threatening to run in 2024. But but it is very difficult to accomplish. On the other hand, the 25th has never been used in this way, although it would not be a coup because it would be following the letter of the constitutional uh, language. Uh, it, It smells of coupish behavior, this idea that the cabinet's secretaries who are appointed or conspiring with the vice president to knock off the guy in charge and put themselves in charge. It, oh, yeah. It, and we it, know how much Republicans are against coups, right? Well, I mean, again, this isn't a, it's not a moral judgment. It's a kind of an analysis of the political optics of it. So none of the paths forward are great. Uh, and I, if I had to bet, having lived through these last four years, I would bet that it probably will not end up going through. But the fact that here we are with only 13 days to go and large numbers of people are coming out, new ones every minute, saying we have to do this is an extraordinary development because in only the most extreme circumstance could you imagine people taking the position. We can't we risk waiting only 13 days to be rid of the guy. It's really yeah. extraordinary. Um, so, but you, something you said about Elaine Chow um, struck me because I, I had thought, silly me, 
I, I'm still naive after all these years. I had thought that she was resigning to to protest what happened, but you're you're suggesting no. It was that she she wants to remove herself from the awkward position of having to decide on a 25th Amendment scenario. Well, that that's my cynical way of looking at the world, <laughs> I guess you could say. But uh, I mean, I mean, sure. I mean, who knows what her motives are? But uh, I could imagine, uh, you know, this is this is a huge decision. Are you going to be part of the majority of cabinet officials who are going to join together and remove the sitting president? Um, You know, uh, it's very much within the realm of what you would expect having lived through these years to assume that people are not going to want to do that and be on the record having done it forever. Um, So Bill Galston, uh, I, if you'll indulge me, I'm just going to read this statement from Governor Phil Scott of Vermont, a Republican, who sort of laid it out, I thought, nicely. And then I want to hear your views about um, sedition, uh, the actual legislation. But uh, here, here's the quote. It's a little bit long. Bear with me. Make no mistake. The president of the United States is responsible for this event. President Trump has orchestrated a campaign to cause an insurrection that overturns the results of a free, fair, and legal election. The fact is, the results of this election have been validated by Republican governors, conservative judges, and nonpartisan election officials across the country. There is no doubt that the Republic that the president's delusion, fabrication, self-interest, and ego have led us step by step to this very low and very dangerous moment in American history. The fabric of our democracy and the principles of our republic are under attack by the president. Enough is enough. President Trump should resign or be removed from office by his cabinet or by the Congress. That was from a Republican. Um, So, Bill, uh, do you share um, the caution that some have uh, expressed that um, you shouldn't you shouldn't shoot at the king unless you're sure you can kill him. Uh, I have to say that I do, Mona. Uh, I just I just posted a co-authored piece on the Brookings website to that effect, working through all of the options, trying to evaluate their political feasibility given current circumstances, and coming to the conclusion that weaving a web of tacit non-compliance with the president for the next 13 days, beginning but not ending with the Department of Defense, is probably the best we're going to be able to do. Uh, If I had to choose between the 25th Amendment and impeachment, I would choose the 25th Amendment because that would originate from within the administration. No one could accuse those people of being engaged in a partisan democratic exercise to get a Republican president. As to the optics of the coolish behavior, those arguments were thoroughly reviewed during the drafting of and debate on the 25th Amendment. That's just, that's just part of the fabric. Uh, there is no way of avoiding for the real cynics and conspiracy theorists, the imputation of self-interest to the vice president, and who knows what kinds of corrupt bargains the vice president could cut with members of the candidate of the cabinet in order to earn their support. Uh, so, uh, the drafters of the amendment went down that road 
And they decided that it was better to have it than not to have it. And I have to say, I agree with them. But, uh, you know, uh, moral indignation has to be tempered by political realism. And if you do something that makes you feel good, but ends up making the situation worse, what have you done? Hmm. So I'm in favor, you know, uh, I'm in favor of applying a very rigorous, as the philosophers would say, consequentialist test to every proposal. If we do this, what is the most likely result? The purity of our motives matters not in the slightest against, you know, the, uh, against the nature of the results. Yeah, Linda. You. Uh, I, yeah, I have a question uh, about the 25th Amendment and uh, a majority of the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Many of members of uh, Donald Trump's cabinet have never been confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And Correct. I am wondering, do, uh, do unconfirmed members of the cabinet get a choice in this? Well, as a matter, you've come to the right person, Linda. Uh, I've, <laughs> you know, I've done a, you know, I've done a really deep dive into the Twenty Fifth Amendment over the, over the past, over the past thirty six hours, and uh, two things, two things are relevant to your question. Number one, the cabinet strict is a sort of an amorphous term, uh, according to you know, according to the letter of the law, it. It applies to the principal leaders of, you know, of the executive departments, which turns out to be a list of 15. I could bore you by enumerating them if you're, in, if you're interested. So that's point number one. It's not, every, it's not everybody who happens to have been elevated to cabinet status by a particular president. It's, you know, it's the principal leaders of the executive departments as defined by law. Uh, secondly... It turns out that for purposes of invoking the 25th Amendment, acting heads are on all fours with confirmed heads of departments. So they can. So that's your, they can. That's yeah. your answer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's my answer. Thank you, Thank you Bill. And, yeah. And, uh, uh, okay. I'll shut up there. Okay. Um, Eric, I want to come back to you. Um, can you tell, enlighten us a little bit more about what, um, what the obligations are of serving members of the military? You know, you often hear it said, military will not obey an illegal order. What is an illegal order specifically? <laughs> well, first, um, let me just stipulate, Mona, I'm not a lawyer and I don't try to play one on TV. So, uh, uh, the, a little bit in the eye of the beholder is the problem. I mean, a, an illegal order would be uh, something that contravenes the laws of war uh, with regard to, say, proportionality of an attack or something like that. Uh, or uh, in this instance, uh, ordering somebody to um, a military person to interfere with a U.S. Uh, domestic election or the conduct of uh, the election by a uh, 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 duly authorized uh, election officials that actually is against the law so that would be a an illegal order um where and it's against the law for the US military to be involved in any policing um in uh, domestically correct yes because uh with both posse comitatus and um the insurrection act 
the military is uh, forbidden from being involved in domestic uh, affairs. Um, back uh, during uh, the June Lafayette Square uh, events, a number of us, I think it was something like 80 plus former senior defense and national security officials signed an open letter that the Washington Post published about the use of the military for uh, purposes of policing protests. Um, so that's a, a very a major concern. The difficulty comes in, you know, if the president invokes the Insurrection Act, mm-hmm. uh, you've got pretty wide scope to do that. Now, I mean, he can't do it if there is, um, you know, uh, no real insurrection, obviously. Um, and usually well, this wait has a been second. Done. Wait, how do you know that? I mean, he invoked emergency powers well, for for a spurious emergency at the border uh, to to spend money on his stupid wall. No, you're right. And the point, though, I was trying to make is I think if he did that, uh, if it were you know completely fictitious uh, insurrection or or uh, one that uh, the local authorities hadn't asked federal help in suppressing. Um, I think you would get pushback from the, the chairman um, and the other uh, chiefs and the subordinate commanders. Now, I think, in fact, that's precisely what David Ignatius was talking uh, about in the column uh, that he wrote on the 26th of December, published on the 26th of December. Um, and as I said, which I believe comes from discussions with uh, Millie or people close to Millie. My, my understanding is the chiefs have actually talked uh, and run through a lot of, uh, you know, permutations and combinations here of what might he might do. Um, they've talked with the uh, general counsels of the military departments and the uh, judge advocate generals, the JAGs of, of the services. Um, and I think they, in their own minds, know where they think that line is. And I think they're prepared to push back against the president to tell him it's an illegal order. Uh, and then to, uh, you know, refuse to carry it out, but that would require them ultimately to resign. And the question then becomes sort of like the Saturday night massacre, um, you know, in the uh, Nixon administration, how far down the chain do you have to go before you find somebody who's willing to actually execute this order? And I think one of the things that was on the minds of the 10 secretaries of defense who signed the letter, I don't want to you know, impute things to them. But my sense is from my dealings with them that they had in mind uh, putting a shot across the bow, uh, both of the acting Secretary of Defense, Secretary Miller, and the civilian uh, appointees around him uh, that President Trump has sent over to the department since the firing of Mark Esper, but also lower down in the chain of command to the, you know, 05s and 06s, uh, you know, 07s, Brigadier Generals, you know, Colonels, Lieutenant Colonels, that there might be consequences uh, for this uh, if they were to actually execute an order that others had resigned over. Hmm. Uh, Bill, did you want to you want to add something? Yeah, I just wanted to ask Eric to clarify something, uh, and that is to distinguish between what you're calling the military on the one hand and the National Guard on the other. Uh, because the National Guard is frequently involved in what we would call policing or maybe macro-policing, you know, preserving or restoring order during times right. of domestic disturbance. Uh, and isn't it the case 
that the president and only the president has the right to call out the National Guard of the District of Columbia? That is correct. I mean, it, it, well, not the president, it's the Pentagon. It falls under the, um, under the uh, guidance of the Pentagon because the, um, the guard in other states is really subject to the governor. Um, and there is no governor in the District of Columbia. So it's a kind of anomalous. Um, okay, and- but, 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 the, you know, but the Pentagon is in the chain of command at the correct. top of which is the president of the United States. Correct, Bill. That's correct. So, and that was you know, one of the scary moments yesterday was that we were reading as, you know, as these things were unfolding, that the mayor had requested help from the National Guard and that the request had gone to the Pentagon, where Esper, as we know, had been fired. And that the, initially um, the response was no, presumably at the orders of the president. And there's another, of course, concerning possibility, which is, um, you know, that if there were some kinds of protests like the ones we had, you know, in, in June in, in D.C., that the National Guard would be sent in uh, over the objections uh, of Mayor Bowser and the municipal authorities um, in the district and not with their cooperation and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and coordination. I mean, that's, you know, the other, you know, side of the of the coin, as it were. <sighs> um. Damon, uh, you know, this, this conversation about, um, you know, members of the military and going down the chain of command until you can find someone to carry out an illegal order. Um, look, in the past, I would have thought, you know, the U.S. military may have a few bad apples, but, you know, it's full of fine, upstanding men and women who are, are patriots and take their responsibilities seriously and understand the difference between legal and illegal, right and wrong. And then you you get the sense, okay, this woman who was killed tragically yesterday at the Capitol uh, was a something like a 12-year Air Force veteran, complete whack job, believes everything that the QAnon people are putting out. Um, The the former National Security Advisor of the United States, uh, General Flynn, is one of the chief conspiracists in the country today. He was the former head of the DIA. You know, you, you you start to lose faith that people in America in general have good sense and have their heads screwed on right. Well, absolutely. I mean, I don't know exactly what to say about that. I sort of see it as a reflection of the spread of these kinds of uh, malicious uh, conspiracy theories throughout the electorate as a whole, uh, especially on the right. And there are a fair number of uh, conservatives in the military, and therefore you're going to get uh, a fair number of these people there as well. Clearly, uh, there there is nothing in the military training or the culture of the military that is weeding uh, this out, which is very distressing. But um, I guess, I guess, after Wednesday's events, um, it definitely feels like the the bigger threat is that bigger thing. The fact that this is spread throughout the population, and actually, uh, th- this this brings up something that I've I've seen while we've been recording this uh, on Twitter. Matthew Iglesias, who's been a guest uh, on the podcast before. I just tweeted a a simple point that I think we need to keep in mind as well about this prospect of trying to impeach the president just 13 days before inauguration. He says, this might feel crazy, but keep in mind 
There is literally no other check on pardon power. And in the District of Columbia, all crimes are federal crimes. So there is no state charge you can bring against violent mobs acting at the president's behest. And then he goes on and points out that the larger issue is that the combination of unchecked pardon power with the lack of D.C. statehood opens the door to a completely legal form of mob rule in which a presidentially aligned militia murders his enemies and gets pardoned. Now that sounds insane that we would be concerned about such a thing. But frankly, after what we saw yesterday, I don't see how you can rule it out, especially while the people Trump invited to Washington to defend him are still lurking about. Uh, Very much so. Eric, I'm more more concerned about that than I am about uh, the the general. I I tend to have perhaps misplaced, but I have faith in the upper reaches of the military, Flynn aside, that uh, that they're on the right side of these things. I mean, I think if if Trump say did attempt a coup of his own on January twentieth and tried to stay in power, which I don't think he's going to do, I, I I feel pretty pretty safe in presuming that the Joint Chiefs wouldn't listen to him for one second past noon on the twenty. No, no, but Damon, my point was that Eric said, you know, they would have, rather than fulfill an illegal order, they would have to resign. So then you get this, you know, whisper down the lane thing where the next guy in line might have to resign too, because he has principles. And then the guy below him might be a QAnon believer. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, then you might, you might have a situation, but the thing is, if it's, if it's one second past noon on January 20th, then it's no longer disobeying an order by the commander in chief. It's now some guy who's hanging out in the white house and has no business being there. It's no longer the president. Now, if it comes, if it comes to Trump tomorrow saying nuke uh, Tehran uh, or Beijing, then, then you uh, enter the situation where where they have to decide what are they going to do? Are they going to stand up to the commander in chief and, and effectively launch a coup against him? Or are they going to resign and then begin the process you're talking about? Yeah. Eric. Well, just two things, uh, Mono. First, um, you know, one of the things I think that was on the mind of the secretaries was the fact, uh, since you mentioned Lieutenant General Flynn, that he had been, uh, according to many press reports, in the Oval Office discussing the imposition of martial law yep. uh, in seven of the contested states and then rerunning the elections somehow under military occupation. <clears throat> so I think they had that in their minds when they did the letter. Um, but, you know, to, to, to Damon's point, um, you know, about that Matt Iglesias uh, was making about the pardon power. I mean, before uh, we came on, I mean, uh, Linda and I were having a little discussion. I I hope that the people who are being charged and the people who they're now identifying who were part of this insurrection uh, yesterday are not just charged with, you know, uh, trespassing and vandalism and destruction of government property, et cetera, but are charged under... Um, Title 18 of the U.S. Code for Seditious Conspiracy, which carries with it a punishment of up to 20 years, because that's what they were engaged in. And mm-hmm. and to do less, I think, will be to encourage more of this in the future. 
Absolutely. Uh, it, it's, uh, and by the way, there's a lot of evidence um, that this was a, an extremely well-planned operation. There were um, sister protests in other parts of the country and at state legislatures. Um, there was a, a lot of chatter on social media about how to smuggle weapons into the district because the district has uh, strict gun laws. Um, there were trucks with uh, guns and ammunition found. There were IEDs on the grounds, discovered on the grounds of the Capitol. And there were pipe bombs found at the, uh, reportedly found at the both the offices of the uh, DNC and the RNC. Um, Linda, you wanted in. I mean, obviously, we're sitting here talking about uh, pardon power. If he stays in office one more day, he can pardon himself. He can pardon each and every person uh, charged, if they are indeed charged, uh, as Eric suggested, with uh, seditious uh, behavior, um, conspiracy. It clearly was a conspiracy. And by the way, it was it was in plain sight. Uh, the conspiracy happened uh, on Parler, uh, the new alternative to Facebook. I mean, the president may have been banned uh, possibly for life, but at least until his term ends uh, from Facebook. Um, but uh, there are al- alternatives. Uh, and all of this was planned in plain sight. Um, Bill, uh, something like I think we said 65% of the Republican caucus voted for the coup. Um, it is, um, Amy Walter of uh, the political report, Cook Political Report, had um, some an, an interesting tweet thread where she points out that over time, when you look at whether Republicans identify more with the party or with Trump, um, more more identify with Trump than with the party, um, by significant margins, uh, we it is. I, I don't know how else to say this other than I'm not sure that democracy survives when one party is is the authority believes openly in authoritarianism and not in democracy. Well, uh, I'm not either, and if this isn't the time for a real gut check on the part of Republicans who are decent and honorable, remain in the party as elected officials, I don't know what is. Uh, And at some point in the next few years, decent and honorable Republicans are going to have to figure out how to translate their discontent into a more effective political strategy than anything they've demonstrated so far. Uh, and that could, that could include uh, the formation of a new political party. Let's call it just for laughs, the conservative party hmm. uh, that would uh, identify with the kinds of principles that brought you and Linda and so many others uh, into politics on the Republican side. Uh, it's clear that if you have a substantial number of people who identify as Trump acolytes first and Republican second, and people 
who rightly think of themselves as Republicans first and Trumpsters never are prepared to go along with them, uh, then you're talking about a real danger. Uh, the people that you're talking about by themselves, the hardcore, not surrounded by the soft corona of people who, for one reason or another, are prepared to vote as they vote, uh, that hardcore by itself would be an irritant, but it seems to me not a fatal threat to democracy. So I don't think the Trump forces hold the future of the republic in their hands. I think it's people who have been Republicans for life uh, who actually hold the balance of power. And if they are prepared at some point to do the right thing, uh, then that would make it impossible for the Trump forces to hold office except in some local elections. Uh, Damon, there's a view. Um, I, I held it for about mm, 45 minutes yesterday afternoon um, <laughs> that, um, that this could really be the thing that discredits the Trump movement. Uh, it could be like the bombing of the Murrah building in Oklahoma City or uh, similar events where um, uh, an extremist does something that's so horrific uh, that, that people recoil in horror. Um, and, um, and I thought perhaps this might be that kind of a moment. And then I saw um, that a, a quick poll, now it may not be accurate, whatever, take it with a grain of salt, but 45% of Republicans said they approved of the storming of the Capitol. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm very cynical when it comes to the Republican electorate by this point. I think there's been such an infrastructure of media organizations and, and then political uh, opportunists who have cultivated, uh, with the president being the worst example among them, but with people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley being, um, you know, newer entrants in this, uh, that the idea of that being broken uh, anytime soon, I think, is probably far-fetched. I will say, and I can't believe I'm actually going to say something positive about Mitch McConnell, I, in looking for any ray of light of something more positive in this mess. Um, the fact that Mitch McConnell began the events yesterday afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, before the debate was shut down by the insurrectionists breaking into the Capitol, he gave a very strong statement at the beginning of deliberations in, in the joint session of Congress in which he unambiguously said, enough is enough. The president was in his right to raise objections. He did so. These have been adjudicated in more than 60 court cases. They have been rejected unilaterally. It is over. It is time to certify this election. Now, now, granted, think of how bad off we must all be now that a statement that anodyne can seem like heroism. <laughs> However, that is, in fact, exactly where we are. 
And the fact that the uh, now outgoing uh, majority leader in uh, in the Senate was willing, though, to stand up and actually say that in the face of the insurrectionists and the president and all the people who uh, he's been organizing to try to overturn the election is a kind of line in the sand that if you know McConnell can do all kinds of things to contribute to our polarization and animosity and you know hyperpartisanship for decades, but at this point when it came time, uh, you know the absolute last moment, he did flinch and pull back from it, and that is the beginning of an opening toward what I think you're suggesting or, or what uh, what Bill is suggesting, that that the path forward is toward a kind of separation between those who are willing to go along with this kind of nosedive into outright authoritarianism and those who say, no, we will not do that, even if it means that the, the right side of the spectrum will be divided right down the middle and no one on that side is ever going to win the presidency for another generation. It's, it's a kind of kamikaze mission, but it might be one that f- out of which something better might be born down the, down the, the road. And so I appreciated that McConnell at least took that stand. Um, he actually even went further. He said that if the Congress takes the unconstitutional step of uh, throwing out the votes of uh, the states, that it will be the unraveling of our democracy. I mean, so it was, it was a very strong statement, but I'm just going to say, I'm not um, as, I'm not as uh, cheerleading for McConnell as some, because um, my sense Alas, I mean, I, I, it's great that he made that statement and it was, it was very good, very good to hear and so on. But over the years, he has done so much to uh, enable and to support and to block and tackle for this president. And it's like he knew what he was doing. He knew the danger of this man to our system. Um, you know, when there was a, if you can, Bear with me on an analogy here. There was a, a small, you know, fire in the basement and he had an, a fire extinguisher and he chose not to use it. And then when the entire building was on fire, he comes with this fire extinguisher and says, okay, here I come. I'm ready. You know, it's like, well, now it's not helpful. Now, I, well, it's not useless, but it's not all, it's not going to make that much of a difference. And so well, I, I agree. And I'm late. I, I agree. My my last point on it would be simply to say that you know, the, since Sarah Palin, basically uh, in two thousand eight, the story of the Republican Party has been trying to ride a tiger, and it continually turns around and eats the person on its back. And uh, you know, finally yesterday, McConnell said, "I'm getting off that tiger," and at least yeah. you know, late, better late than never. I would say. Yeah. Okay. Everybody wants in on this. So Linda, then Bill, then Eric. Well, uh, first of all, I should announce to our listeners, because I don't think I've announced this uh, on the podcast yet. I did, in fact, leave the Republican Party. I have uh, re-registered and I am now unaffiliated in the state of Maryland. Um, And I did it before the insurrection. But 
uh, it doesn't matter that I've left the Republican Party. What would matter is if some really prominent people left the Republican Party. And my first nominee to do so is Senator Mitt Romney. Um, I think he should leave the party. I think he should uh, become an independent. Uh, I would hope that Ben Sass would consider doing the same thing. Who knows? Maybe even uh, Senator Toomey uh, would uh, agree to do this. Uh, I think if you had a handful of people who were prominent, who were principled uh, doing this, you would see a change. And until that happens, Clearly, the Republican Party, as it now stands, uh, cannot be salvaged. And so it's going to take rebuilding something new. And in order to do that, you have to see people willing to risk their jobs, willing to risk their prominence by leaving the party. Um, my son, the, uh, the, the, the history PhD student, told me that it would this would be the time to read up on the origins uh, the the death of the Whig party and the origins of the Republican party he recommended Eric Foner free soil free labor free men i've ordered it <clears throat> bill galston yeah well this is a political sciency point uh, that may have some actual political consequences down the road uh, over the past 24 to 36 hours there has been a very sharp contrast between Republicans in the House and Republicans in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Right? We're using numbers like 60 to 65 percent you know, to, to characterize uh, the behavior of the House Republican caucus. Uh, the relevant number in the Senate is seven. Yeah. Uh, that is to say, seven out of 51, which works out to a little bit more than 15%. And that number in the wake of the, of the insurrection was cut in half. Yeah. So seven out of the 14 jumped ship. As far as I can tell, nobody, no Republicans in the House jumped ship. Mm-hmm. And a shocking 138 House Republicans voted uh, to uphold the objection to the Pennsylvania slate of electors. So, you know, I, I think, you know, there are a few babies in that bathwater that I wouldn't want to throw out completely because I think that a lot of Republican senators, given the opportunity, could be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Uh, the House of Representatives with so many with so many Republicans from districts where the only thing they have to fear is not fear itself, but rather a primary uh, I think they're a lost cause and you know, like a big pothole will need to be paved over somehow. Yeah. Um, let me just give the role of shame here and uh, I commend the uh, very strong editorial by George Will um, about these guys, but uh, the names are Senator Josh Hawley, Senator Ted Cruz, Cindy Hyde Smith, Roger Marshall, Rick Scott, Tommy Tuberville and John Kennedy, um, and uh, it is a, it is a, a a role of shame, and they all know better. Okay, Eric. So two things: one, <clears throat> as as a history PhD, uh, uh, your son's recommendation is excellent. Um, oh, good. Foner's <laughs> book on the rise of Republican ideology is a great book, uh, even 50, 60 years after the fact of having written it. Um, 
and and Bill has heard me say in other contexts that you know I I used to be a Democrat. I became a Republican. I'm prepared to become a Whig. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think uh, and to pick up on Bill's point about the senators, several of whom got off of this train uh, after the events of yesterday. And I noted a couple even in the House when I looked at the roll call vote, uh, a couple of of members uh, who had gotten very Trumpy, uh, but but who I think you know should know better, actually bailed. And uh, even though they had signed on to the amicus brief for the Paxton lawsuit and other things, actually ended up voting nay last night, not I. And so, on the objections. And so, um, I, I take some hope from that in the sense that. I think it's going to take a little bit of time for people to uh, process what happened uh, yesterday. Um, I think it's going to take uh, a time for public opinion to settle into exactly what they think of what happened. And I think it's going to be overwhelmingly negative in terms of people's view of it um, and shameful. Uh, And I think as a result of that, I think you're going to see, uh, you know, potentially some change. Uh, Bill may want to comment on this, but it took the Democratic Party uh, the better part of a generation to get over the taint of insurrection uh, after 1860. Now, in the 21st century, things move you know much faster, and and we tend to forget things more easily, I guess. But um, I'm not sure that unless a lot gets done in the Republican Party in the next uh, few weeks and months, uh, that they're going to get over the taint of what happened yesterday very quickly. Damon. Yeah, the only thing I wanted to to add when we're talking about uh, roles of shame, uh, I see here Rush Limbaugh made the following comment on his radio show today. Quote, there's a lot of people calling for the end of violence. I am glad Sam Adams, Thomas Paine, the actual Tea Party guys, the men at Lexington and Concord didn't feel that way. So, you know, um, that that is, I think, that really is the key. I mean, Rush Limbaugh has been doing this for like, what, about 30 years now almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember listening to him in my 20s, driving around in the car and I would hear him and you would feel the kind of visceral excitement of this guy who who was portraying his listeners on one side of some battle against the evildoers on the other side. And he's just been doing it and stoking it like crazy. He's now in closer with the president than any president he's ever uh, been uh, you know, in power since he's been doing this shtick. And so he's fully out there pushing this line. And until that stops, um, there is, I, I fear there is going to be this, uh, this seething cauldron of anti-democratic ire uh, just at a low boil and maybe a, a, a higher boil as we move down the road. It's very distressing. Yeah. And we should probably devote <clears throat> some time in coming weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, to talking about possible reforms in social media and elsewhere to these uh, unbelievably destructive uh, outlets, really, for for conspiracy thinking and misinformation and what we can do about that while still maintaining the uh, the First Amendment. Uh, this is a this is a huge, huge aspect of what we're of what we're living through. All right. Um, 
on that note, we have come to our last segment. So, um, Linda, let's start with you, your final thoughts. I'm going to uh, start the shaming process and uh, <laughs> that you're talking about because, you know, a lot of people are, are uh, wonder where this all came from. And I want to refer people back to a column that was written by Michael Anton uh, in the, the Claremont Review of Books. And he wrote it back in September of 2016. He wrote it under the pseudonym Publius, uh, a ridiculous, uh, uh, and I think affectation, affectation, yes, <laughs> uh, of sacrificing your life for the greater good. Uh, a third century Roman consul uh, who did that exact thing. And let me just, I, I'll condense it, but let me just read how that piece opened. 2016 is the Flight 93 election. Charge the cockpit or you die. You may die anyway. You or the leader of your party may make it into the cockpit and not know how to fly or land the plane. There are no guarantees except one. If you don't try, death is certain. To compound the metaphor, a Hillary Clinton presidency is Russian roulette with a semi-auto. With Trump, at least, you can spin the cylinder and take your chances. Well, thank you, Michael Anton. Thank you, all of those uh, intellectuals on the right who gave us the seditious action that happened yesterday. Yeah. Eric Edelman. I, um, I know you prize civility on the show, um, but I'm really not feeling that civil after watching what happened yesterday. Um, and I know that, you know, we... Uh, have gotten uh, used to marking time in the Trump era by Scaramucci's, as in we have one and a half Scaramucci's <laughs> left in Trump's term. But I noticed this week that we have another new metric, uh, this time for intelligence, uh, which is all the blind quotes from Republicans uh, trashing Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who went to Stanford, Yale, and Princeton, Harvard, respectively, um, because they're not morons like uh, Louis Gohmert. Um, so we now have the Gomert as a measure of intelligence, as in he's too Gomert shy of a full load. <laughs> he's not the brightest Gomert in the chandelier. He's not the sharpest Gomert in the drawer. <laughs> That's great. Fair enough. Okay. Bill. I once spent a plane ride with him. Don't get me started. <laughs> well, first of all, you know, I want to begin with a note of consolation to Linda Chavez uh, by saying that you didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left you. Uh, to quote Ron uh, Reagan. Right. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Ron Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, having said that, you know, as an only partly defrocked former college professor, I have a reading assignment for everybody who's interested in the legal framework for the conversation that we just had and probably will be continuing to have for quite some time. Namely, go to the U.S. Code and read the paragraph defining sedition. Uh, people who have been talking about seditious behavior in the past day, involving the President of the United States, 
may have been thinking that they were talking analogically. They are not. What happened yesterday falls in the black letter heart of the legal code's definition of sedition. Uh, And uh, like others on this show, I very much hope uh, that the authorities throw the book at the people who really profaned the democratic holy of holies yesterday, the Congress of the United States. And, uh, and a plain reading, a uh, facial reading of the U.S. Code suggests that the President of the United States is just as guilty from a legal standpoint as any of the actual invaders themselves, and from a moral point of view, more so. Yes, excellent. Okay, Damon. Well, I, it, it's unfortunate with that with Eric as our guest, we of course had no opportunity this week to really talk about foreign policy or even the foreign policy implications of what happened this week. Um, but uh, on that note, I wanted to highlight a very good piece by Ann Applebaum that posted uh, this morning on Thursday in the Atlantic titled, What Trump and His Mob Taught the World About America. Because I do think as, as tempting as it is when we're going through the spasm of civic unrest at home to, to kind of fixate on ourselves without thinking about the outside world, there's a lot to be distracted by. We live in a world that is so transparently connected on media. The entire world was watching that with us yesterday. And the lesson is has done incalculable harm and will just continue to do so. It's 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 impossible to believe the the, the statements of uh, the organization of American states, countries throughout the Americas that have suffered coups and authoritarian dictatorships for much of the last century, uh, over and over again, issuing statements hoping for the peaceful transfer of power in the United States. Um, uh, the Brazilian uh, Brazilian politicians exclaiming that they hope that if Bolsonaro does not prevail in their next election that they don't face the same thing happening in the United States. Um, the, the, how could Beijing uh, or the, the mullahs in Iran look at what's happening here or in Moscow, Putin, look at this and not smile gleefully at the United States descending into this chaos in our country? Uh, it is... It is something it's going to take a very long time to to really reckon with. Uh, and uh, Anne's piece, though written quickly, obviously, uh, is only the very bare beginnings of that. But for anyone who's interested in that dimension of these events, it's a good place to start. Thank you. I, You know, that does touch on one of the aspects of this that is so horrifying is the deep and profound shame we feel that it has come to this, that our country has come to this. I I was struck this morning by a statement from the Turkish government saying that they called upon both sides in the United States to show restraint. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, just, uh, yeah. Um, Why is so, that painful? Uh, <laughs> I would, I would, um, I would like to draw attention to something, though, that um, 
just just struck me. Look, I for a short time in my life, I I worked on Capitol Hill. Um, I I revere uh, our traditions, our history, recognizing, of course, all its flaws. Um, but somebody did something yesterday that just that just had echoes for me that when the violent mob was descending on the Senate chamber, some quick thinking aide had the thought to grab the boxes that contained the electoral college ballots from the states and, and secure them. And it sort of had echoes for me of, you know, Dolly Madison saving the portrait of, uh, of George <laughs> Washington as the British were going to come and burn the White House. Um, obviously, those actual boxes are not really essential because the states can resend, you know, the letters. But it was, a it, you know, they're, they're these big old-fashioned boxes with big old-fashioned straps on them. It's 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 part of American history and tradition that that's the way they're presented. And I just felt, God bless that person, whoever it was, or the group of, of staffers who, who said, you know, we're going to, we're going to save these. Um, it, it, it was, it was something that I hope um, will, will be a symbol for the future rather than the desecration um, that was the overwhelming message. And with that, we thank you all. Thank you, Eric Edelman, for joining us again. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we will return next week as every week. 